Hi, this is Jim Lobato. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. In the studio tonight, we have Jay Forty. And you probably remember Jay from some previous programs we have done. We've talked about his previous work, which is fire up your employees and smoke your competition, along with the download he has on his website, Stand Out and Get Hired. And his new book, The Greatness Zone, Know Yourself, Find Your Fit, and Transform the World. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. Jay, it's uh, it's not often we have somebody who can actually join us in the studio, but we originate this program in Des Moines, Iowa, and you actually were here speaking, and we're able to have you come into the studio and do this program. So we're grateful for the fact we're actually able to have you live here uh, for this program. But uh, tell the audience a little bit about what you were in town speaking on. Uh, Jim, I was in town to speak at a uh, SHRM, a Society of Human Resource Management conference. This is uh, five or 600 HR professionals who meet uh, once a year, and they go through education, and they uh, have keynote speeches. Um, and what they're looking to do is to find new ways of activating employee performance so that um, they can bring this information back to their workplace and dramatically affect the results. Jay, when we talked earlier... You drew your concentric circles for me, and, and is that in your new book? Because I thought that was a great model of illustrating what you're talking about. I, I love this. To me, I'm a visual learner, so I'm, I was trying to create four people understanding themselves, these three concentric circles, a Venn diagram, and the circles intersect, and the intersection is what I call the greatness zone. That's the zone. That's your place where what you're good at, one of the circles, what you love doing, a second circle, and the third circle, what success is for you? What makes you happy? What, what's important to you? And what you're looking for in understanding yourself is the place where you get to have all of that. You're good at it. You love it. And it matters to you. And when you get to work from that place or live in that place, that's what I call your zone, your greatness zone. Life for you and work for you is not average anymore. It's great. One of the things when we work with individuals in organizations is – it's tough for them to recognize what they're good at. And it's almost like you can't read the label from inside the bottle. So for our people who are out there today listening to the program and say, well, that's great, Jay, you know, identify what you're good at. And I can imagine him sitting down with a, you know, a yellow pad and a pen and go, uh, uh, <laughs> so, so what is the trick to identify what you're good at and be able then to articulate that? That, that, that's a really good question. And this is, of the three circles, this is the stumbling block. <clears throat> when, when you think about what you're good at, it's so, it, generally it's so fundamentally hardwired in your head that you don't even know you're good at it. It's like a hand that's in front of your face. And until someone gives you some guidance about sometimes what it is or you see it in action, that, that you start to understand or give language to it. So my suggestions for people to figure out what they're good at, I give a couple. And the book is going to be supported by a website because some people are really great at figuring out what they're good at and others need a little bit more help. 
the little bit more help I generally offer is a connection to some talent assessments, because sometimes if you hear the language about what you're good at, you start to say, hey, that's me. I get that. And now I have language and I can explain it. The second thing that I always recommend for people when they're trying to figure themselves out is that they get good at journaling. And, and I know a lot of people say, ah, you know, I, I don't have the time. I won't do it. I'm not a writer. I'm not going to spend the time. You make me want to buy a diary. I'm not going to buy a diary, you know, and, and this is not at all about the diary. This is a place for you to take five or six or ten minutes every morning or evening, whatever works for you, and document what you're thinking about. And if you do that for 21 days, they say that's the time to create the habit. But if you do that for a month and then you flip back through what you've written, you start to get a vision or a view of who you are and how you think and what matters to you that gives you some of this information about what you're good at. And then the final one that, that, that I ask people to consider in order to figure out what you're good at is ask somebody else. A couple of great questions you can ask is the obvious one. So what am I good at? And you can go to your parents. You can go to other people who know you well and realize that your talents are so, like I said, they're so hardwired in you that many times you don't even know you're good at until someone explains it. But my favorite thing to ask is ask someone to say, look, when you introduce me or explain me or, or, or present me to somebody else, how do, you, how do you do that? What do you say about me? Because that frequently gives you language about the things that you're good at. Because it's how we explain people. That's how we introduce people are the things that they seem to be really good at. So when you put all those, those are ways of checking in to figure out what is it that you're really good at. And part of it takes practice. You know, it takes being reflective. I mean, this is classic Plato. This is classic, you know, philosophy that everybody hates. This is 350 BC. You know, the Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. And Plato says, know yourself. And that's kind of what they mean, that you're, you have this amazing combination of talents and passions and strengths that no one can decipher but you. And you have to get good at noticing how you think and what you feel and what matters to you. And the first way to do that is to take a look at what you're good at. So the first circle is identify what you're good at. I love your questions. You know, ask people when you introduce me or when you explain me to people, you know, how, how would you do that? And one of the tips maybe is simply put that in an email to people close to you and say, would you answer this question for me? I'm working on this project about called me. Put in an email, send me back your answers, and be able to write those down and look at those, and you'd have a pretty good, I think, a really good start. I love that question. The other thing I think is good, and you said your website has some assessments, talent assessments people can take. Yeah, we, we've added a page because sometimes – the best thing you can do is to invest a little bit of time and money in yourself. And a talent assessment right. creates some language so that, that when you're starting to apply for jobs or see yourself in the world, you have language that can explain some of the things that, that – well, that explains the, the, the way that you think and the um, positive attributes that you have. And in the absence of the language, sometimes we can't comfortably explain it to somebody else. But if we have a word for it and when we arm, your, our, when we arm ourselves with the words for it – we have a really a pretty good way of ensuring that the rest of the world starts to help us figure ourselves out as well. We were discussing how people could get to know themselves better and find their fit. And you gave the example of three circles. And the first circle being identify what you're good at. The second circle is what do you love? Now, you would think people know this about themselves. But whenever I ask people that question, what do you really love to do? They cannot clearly articulate that. So I was wondering how you facilitate people discovering what they really love to do. 
And a lot of the work that, that we do with these kinds of questions, this is actually the easiest one. The other two are a little bit tougher. But the way that we generally counsel or coach people in doing this is saying, when you're having a great time, when you're in your flow, that moment where you wish time would never end, what is it you're doing? What are you thinking about? What are you feeling? And physically, what are you doing? When I was a kid, gardening was that for me. I could be out there all day. In fact, when I bought our first house, the first thing I did was I put a big spotlight in the backyard because I knew that when darkness came, that didn't mean I was done with gardening. <laughs> I needed to be out there more. And I knew that no matter what I would do, I would have to have some kind of garden. That was just the way a good Italian kid, that's what you raise. I mean, how else are you going to eat the, the, the tomatoes and the basil? So Absolutely. You, you needed the garden. And so the, the coaching frequently is... Notice yourself when you're having a terrific time. What kinds of things are you doing and how are you feeling? The best, the best way is to notice that, first of all. And most of us know when we're having a good time, we're happy. A couple of things you can do that sound an awful lot like the, the, the previous step is, hey, journal. You notice the quality of your writing when your writing is happy. Notice the event you were in when that was going on. And then also ask your parents or ask your friends. Again, that's a great one as well. When you see me at my happiest, what, what am I doing? And that doesn't mean you don't know. It just says, I would like another perspective because maybe that will add some more information. And now I have more so I can figure out a really robust way of doing this. I've heard some business owners tell me this, and I've heard some executives say the same thing, which is, you know, the business I was in or I created or the company that I was leading at the time, they didn't know this, but they didn't have to pay me. I was having so much fun that I never considered it work. And I never really worried about the pay because I was having so much fun doing it. So what I hear you saying is identifying the moments where you're just having fun, where time seems to stop and it, and you could do it forever if you had the option. Well, you know, J Jim, here's a question that I asked the, uh, the audiences that I had at the SHRM conference here at the Human Resource Managers. I said, is it possible that you could love your job? And, and that one throws everybody because, you know, work is a four-letter word and, and I have to do it. So, you know, it's a, this nasty, terrible event. Well, you know, this migration to today's intellectual workplace, your best impact on a customer is in a job that you also like doing. You've got to be good at it and you've got to love doing it because that's what comes across to a customer. So why is it that you couldn't work in a job that you also adore? Wouldn't that be great? The biggest problem I find is that you don't know. You haven't done the work on yourself to figure out where's an environment that would let me absolutely love what I do in the course of a day. Not only would I be better at it, but I would have such a good time that my performance would reflect the fact that I'm ready to do all this extra effort. That dramatically separates me from other people in the workplace. And now I've advanced my career by not only doing great work, but doing something I love. Third circle, defining success. Now, that one, I think, would have to be tricky. This is the toughest one. And you know what? And, and the best way I can liken uh, or, or explain this is, look, we grow up listening to everybody else. And they tell us who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to believe, where we're supposed to work, where we're supposed to live, who we're supposed to marry. They tell us all these things. And what this circle is asking you to do is to tune down the voices of everybody else and turn up the vol volume of your own voice. I'm asking you what matters to you. Because I'm looking for you to find the center, that, that greatness zone, that's the combination of what you're good at, what you love, and something that matters to you. Hey, this is you. You've got to get up every day. You have to love this life. You have to um, choose the things that matter to you. You may grow up in a family that says, you know, um, 
we all live in the city. We've always lived in the city, and that's what it is. But your happiest days are when you happen to be in the wilds in Colorado. Well, whose life is this anyway? As I remember telling my own parents, as they're barely telling me what my life is supposed to be, realizing that ultimately it's my choice. I invent this life, and everything I need to have a great one I have, I just need to get connected into what it is. So the hard part about defining the success for you is to trust your own voice about what really matters to you, irrespective of everything else. And how do you get comfortable figuring out for you what it is? And, you know, we have a lot of resources on the website that go with this. I'm sorry, I've got no resources for you on this one. This one, you just have to do your own work. You have to listen to your own voice. You have to pay attention to what matters to you. And you have to be honest with yourself about what would make a difference for you. Yes, I understand we're in a world full of other people. We have families. I I get all that. We have to listen to all that, too. But, you know, I think one of the greatest gifts we ever get in our life is that we get to invent our life in the way that we'd like it to be. And we get all the things that we need in order to do that with this unique combination of DNA and our strengths and our talents and our passions. So we have everything we need to live this really great life. Part of it is saying, for me, here's what I would like that great life to be. And it's to have that internal dialogue or that external dialogue with your family. And, hey, I grew up like Jim. We were big Italian families. This is a really tough discussion sometimes because the world has in mind all the things you should be and what you should do. But you know what? Sometimes you're not exactly in the mold of everybody else. So here's the one where you say, this is what matters to me. Well, you and I both talked about, given both of our Italian heritage, that, you know, surely somebody in the family was going to be a priest. That was just a given. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the rule is, if you're going to be an Italian family, there's always somebody, somebody's got to be an attorney and somebody's got to be a priest. Yeah. So. You'd surely make mom happy if you were the one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but dad, priests can't get married. <laughs> just to stay on just for a second, because I understand how, how hard this could be. In your opinion, when you get to the circle, we, we've talked about what are you good at? What do you love? How do you define success? Does it need to be quantifiable or can it be touchy-feely? That's a really good question. Um, Know that your definition of success changes over time. Your definition of success may be I need to make a certain amount of money because this is where I want to live and this is the lifestyle I want. That might be it. It might be I need more time with my family and that's a critical thing with me. So you know what? I'll make some other changes. So it could be a touchy-feely. It also could be really empirical. Know that, that it's a requirement to check in on it often. That my perspective is that what you're good at and what you love don't change that much. You're pretty hardwired. And when you identify them, they really aren't going to change that much. But your definition of success will constantly change based on the other factors going on around you. So you decide to get married. Well, everything will change. You have kids. Everything will change. You get older. Everything will change. So you now have the ability to look at the things that you're good at and the things that you love and the movable piece and constantly change things so you are always choosing to put yourself in your zone. So it's always a moving target. And I, I would probably add to that, it probably always should be future-based. I think. And it's, it's also about living in the moment. I do get that. It's that I'm looking a little bit ahead saying that's what I want. So I'm moving towards that. So where do I need to readjust my life so I get to have that? Um, Jim, I'm not sure you're going to ask me, but we had talked earlier about this baton thing. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Go ahead. And here's a, here's a great place to explain this. We have this, this um, little family habit, I guess, or, or tradition or ceremony. I'll call it a ceremony. When, I have three daughters. Um, when each of the kids graduated high school, we have what we call the passing of the baton. Uh, and we, we have a baton and we give them the baton and we say, you know, in 18 years we have tried to show you how big the world is so that you could see that 
when we pass this baton and you own your life from that point on, that you see that you have choices and these choices need to be the right ones for you. We wanted you to see how much you could choose from. And then from that, you find the things that match what you're good at, what you love and what matters to you. So that every day you wake up and say, I'm thrilled by life. That's really what we want for you. So we pass the baton and all three have been ready to take the baton. They didn't pass it back at all. Um, but we do say to them, from this point on, we are always here for counsel. But from this point on, you own your life as big or as little as you choose to make it. Now, we hope it's big, but we also realize it's entirely your choice. But you now know yourself really well. So choose the things that play to the things that make you happy and make you feel successful. And when we do that, we think we've done a very good job as pa parents of setting up kids to have very successful lives. Success from their terms. It doesn't mean you're rich and it doesn't mean you have an attorney's job. It doesn't mean you're the priest. It means whatever in your definition of happiness, you choose it because this is the great life you get to have. And, and, and be at peace with those choices then. That's right. That's right. And, and you're not there to make sure that I agree with all your pieces. This is your life. I had my time to choose all my pieces. This is your time for your pieces. Jay, employers have been talking for some time that they need talented people, but they've been confusing experience with talent. Two years ago, you wrote the book, Fire Up Your Employees and Smoke the Competition, which started your discussion on talent-based, talent in its truest sense, what talents do people bring to the job, so it's almost second nature to them. Why do you think your topic is so relevant right now? I, th I think there are a couple of things that have affected it. And, and I'm thrilled to be here at this moment, you know, that that the workplace has changed. And I, and I think this entire process has happened from this movement of the industrial age to today's intellectual or the conceptual age, however you call it. It's changed our workplaces to think about people as people, that, that the best value they bring is when they're emotionally connected to what they do and they're really part of the workplace. And that's allowed the discussion that we're supposed to have been having at home to also be had in the workplace. So it now turns the entire discussion about who we are, how we think, what we feel, and that sets us up for some really good discussions about am I choosing wisely in life? And, and as we spoke about earlier, I think there's also a spiritual discussion going on in there that, that the workplace now requires you to be whole. You have to be complete as a person to be really effective in the jobs that you do. Well, that also requires that you have a good sense about who you are and that you choose wisely in life. And if you take a look at any of the major religions, they're all after this process of you understanding the true you, the real valuable you, the you that has very specific gifts, and you have an obligation to use those gifts. And all of that seems to have come right at this one moment through this migration of one economy to another one. Let's talk about it for a second on the employer side of things. We talked earlier, you had a very interesting comment of doing, your comment was, well, do talent-based interviews. And your point was, if you can understand how people, you know, think, then you'll understand how they're going to react. And so talk a little bit about further about what you mean by talent-based interviews and why that's so important in the workplace today in terms of getting this match between the job and the person taking that job. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most important tools that hiring managers or organizations have. Think of it this way. Um, first of all, your employees, which in a previous industrial age were frequently not in view of customers. So this migration to this intellectual, this service age, has put our employees directly in front of customers. When I hire somebody, I am now keenly aware that that employee is either building or destroying my brand. 
So I have to be very wise about how I hire. So now I'm bringing all the points in about what the Greatness Zone talks about. I need my employee to be good at what they do. I need them to love what they do because they're now in front of my customer. And if I have an average person who's disinterested, and, and we all know that. We, we travel, we eat out, we go to Home Depot, we have all these places, and we see that the people who are in the jobs can't stand doing what they're doing. So the perspective was, before I let someone touch my valuable customer, I want to be able to ask them some questions on how they would process. So when I put them there, I've already had a little bit of a test ride. I want to know how you're going to think in these situations because I'm going to give you some situations that you will find in the workplace, and I want to know how you'd handle it to see if the way that you handle it is a way that would add value for my company. I liken it to saying... You would never go buy a car without taking the car for a test drive. I need to know how it feels. I need to know how it handles. I need to know what it looks like. I need to do all that stuff. Well, that's what talent-based interviewing is. Talent-based interviewing says, I really know the thinking and the passions that would make somebody great in this job. You think you are. That's great. I'm glad to have that discussion. Now, let me prove it. And I asked questions like, tell me about a time when, and I give them a real work life, I mean, a workplace situation. Or here's a situation you're going to find in my workplace. How would you handle it? And based on what brain biology tells us, what I'm looking for is their first and most immediate reaction. So if I ask a question that sounds like all the other questions we always ask in interviews, they've already planned for that. And the answer that I get isn't true about how they really think. So I have to ask questions that they could not prepare for or give them situations that they don't know about, not to trip them up, but to find out how they think. The expression I use with companies is, you know, your employees, do they pack their brains when they pack their lunch? Because that's, the exp that, that's what I'm really paying them for. I'm not paying them to handle a customer in a customer service job. I'm paying them to think through the most efficient, most effective, and most profitable response in this moment. So not everybody thinks the same way. So that means my interviewing process must assess how you think to see if you're going to think the right way here. Right, and you made it. You gave me a statistic of like how many thoughts are. Yeah, we make we make twenty thousand three second decisions in the course of a day. We are just making decisions on the spot, and we do it based on our hardwiring. Right, and, and I think that's to me when you gave me that statistic, I said that that's the tipping point, because there's no way you can train for every scenario. To a, you don't have time. Let's start with that. You don't have time to train for those scenarios. So when people interact with your customers, in that nanosecond that flashes through their head, how they're going to react, what they're going to say, is going to make or break your brand, like you said. And that's what, it, I guess, what it really comes down to it for me is the fact that the onboarding orientation has almost gone by the wayside. You throw people in jobs today, say, here, figure it out, let's go. And then managers get frustrated because they're not thinking like me. I love that. I talk to these HR uh, or the HR professionals all the time. And, and I hear this over and over again. In fact, it was in my, the company that I used to work for. This was their hiring approach. Did you pass the drug test? Did you fog the mirror? You're on the phones. And if this is the person who is the face of your company, who is the, the required location to move a customer from satisfied to loyal because loyal customers drive your business and drive your bottom line, then how could you not wisely choose who you put in there? And Okay, so the organization must be absolutely clear about the thinking and the passions and the talents and the, and the uh, um, skill and experience that would make somebody effective in the job. But that's only half the battle. 
And that brings us to what the nature of what the greatness zone was about, saying, okay, what if I required people to step up and meet me halfway in this process? Then I might be able to have a better chance at finding fit. Because if you know yourself and you know you're fit for this job, this makes the process of hiring the right people a whole lot easier. Well, and also, if the individual was to take up that task, they would stop interviewing for jobs they think they want or are qualified for because they could spot it pretty quickly. Oh, that's not me. Yeah, well, I heard a, a couple of comments that, that, that really floored me to, uh, this week when I was here at this conference. And one was um, that, that people nowadays are, are making hundreds of copies of their resumes and sending them out to everything. And they put their entire life story on it, hoping that something in there would strike a chord. And my comment to the HR professionals was, why would you let, why would you do their work for them? You need to, to require people who apply for a job to tell you honestly and upfront what it is that they're fundamentally good at and what are they passionate about doing because that's the fit for the job. Don't make me hunt through your entire resume to wonder what you're all about. So th that's why I use the phrase, meet me halfway. You must send in a talent-based resume. Otherwise, I'm not even going to look at it because you're making me do all your work and you need to do your own work. What are you good at and why should you be here? Have you seen any evidence from people who have taken your approach to figure out what they're good at, what they love, and how they define success, and translate that forward into looking for jobs where it's been successful, where they've stood out. Have you seen any evidence of that? Yeah, yeah actually, I have, I have a lot of stories of that. Um, the, the, the initial reason for doing it wasn't necessarily to help people find jobs, but there was a, a great byproduct. To, um, my initial uh, approach to it was, hey, wouldn't it be great if you knew yourself so you could have a really great life? That I would really love. But I also realized that part of having a really great life is working in a job that really matters to you. <clears throat> I, a, a number of people, a friend of mine is a, um, uh, he went to school for uh, political science and he graduated in political science, but um, that's not really where his love is. His love is in financial analysis. And, and here's a guy that, that took this talent assessment um, and used a talent-based resume and applied for a job at a financial services firm and was hired on the spot because of the, 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 the nature of what he put in the resume. And, and the, the selling point in it was that here was an organization that understood they wanted greatness from their people. And they understand that not everybody's a great fit, but they looked at the resume and said, here's somebody who's done the work to figure themselves out and realize this is in fact the right job for them. So let me bring them in and talk to them to find out if they in fact can do what they say they do. But the resume is what got their attention it doesn't look like the other resumes. It's not at all for everybody. And we are trying to work with most organizations to say, you know, stop asking for skill and experience that, doesn't, that they don't tell you the two critical things about performance, which are you're good at it and you love it. Skill and experience don't always show anything other than you happen to endure, that you lasted in the job long enough. And that isn't why I'm hiring you. I'm hiring you to make a difference. So the nature of this, in this situation, there's a number of other ones that were similar to that where they were, um, uh, they, their, their approach to getting hired used this talent-based resume, and it made them stand out for two reasons. One, the resume didn't look like every other resume. And secondly, the resume said important things to a hiring manager. Here's what I'm good at. Here's the difference I've made. And here's the difference I can bring to your company. We're talking about talent, the talent you would hire to come to work in your company. But more than that, the talent that matches the job that you have open. Now, Jay, I can only imagine some of the hiring managers listening to this program are saying to themselves, 
You know, Jay, this kind of seems kind of touchy-feely, this whole talent thing and tuning into that. You know, I have a position open over here. I need to hire somebody who has the experience, put them in that role, and I'm going to pay them. So go back and just for a second, give us the ROI on this. Why what you're talking about in terms of matching talent to the roles is so vital today when it comes to performance. Build the business case for us. That is my favorite question. I'm a CPA by training, and I was a CFO for years. So uh, trust me, I have a bottom line. I am watching the numbers. I am all about the bottom line. One of the programs that I taught when I was here uh, this week was a program for HR uh, professionals, and it was called Strategic HR, Moving from Payroll to Profits. What I showed them was a little image that I have. It's it's a a picture of a GPS. And the example I give is, you know, I'm a real Starbucks fan because I really like rich coffee. And and I can take my GPS no matter where I am in the country, pretty near in the world, and I can enter Starbucks and it will maneuver me through wherever I am and help me find my way. And that was what I was trying to get at by drawing this GPS. So I am starting with the bottom line. The very first thing that affects the bottom line is a loyal customer, not a satisfied one, but a loyal customer. And a loyal customer is someone who is emotionally connected to the business, the brand, people, or the company. So I know the more my organization can make loyal customers, the larger my bottom line is. Okay, so push that back one more. What activates loyal customers? Passionate employees, engaged employees who love what they do and are good at what they do, Because what it takes to move a customer from satisfied to loyal is an emotional connection. And who's going to do the emotional connection? Not a boring and bland and an employee who hates everything. An employee who is actually in the right job. They feel capable, competent. They feel like the place is their home and they love doing it. Okay, so push it down one more. What creates that kind of employee? Well, it's an employee-focused workplace. So to me, the buttons that drive great profitability and the reason why I use this little analogy is – Hey, when you went to bed last night, the world changed. It is not the same place. If you still stay focused on the P&L, on the bottom line, you will maneuver your way through a new set of criteria for driving the bottom line. And that's activating customer loyalty, uh, ensuring you have highly engaged and highly passionate or fired up. That's the expression I use, fired up employees, and that you build a workplace that attracts the best and retains the best. When you have that, you find that the key to great bottom line is highly engaged employees. That's the key. Your people are your profits now more than ever before. And that's why this is not kumbaya, group hug, touchy-feely, fairy dust stuff. This is the new definition of performance, which drives profitability. Let me make this real world for a second. The I was talking to a CEO of one of our clients that we work with. His company travels internationally. A very unique company, and they travel all over the world selling their technology. And we had this discussion about the fact that Airtran is being acquired by Southwest. Well, we've been trying to get Southwest in Des Moines for years. And it looks like it could happen with Southwest acquiring Airtran because Airtran flies out of Des Moines. But we had a conversation. He says, you know, I used to love to fly Delta. And says, until Delta got acquired by Northwestern, because I hated flying Northwestern. Now I hate to fly Delta till I figured out the reason I hate to fly Delta is because the chairman of or the CEO of Northwestern is now the CEO of, of Delta. <laughs> and he said, you see the reflection in all the employees. And his point was, I didn't really understand that till I started flying Southwest. 
And I made the comment. I said, yes, yeah, given my situation, I fly to Chicago a lot. United is the best way to go. I said, you know, the great thing about flying United is, you know, half the time the uh, flight attendants are upset or these have, a, you know, this angry look on their face. And he looked at me and says, half the time? Don't you mean like 90% of the time? And it does have an effect on whether you choose. I mean, the most pleasant experience in the world, you know this, is not necessarily, you know, putting your butt down in the coach and flying for one or two hours or 12 hours, especially with people who aren't happy to be there to service you. So I think exactly what you're talking about can be a good example of how this plays out in the the marketplace. Okay, if there was one thing you could tell hiring managers today about what you're talking about, the one thought you want to leave them with, what would that be? Think fit. Or the expression I like to say is fit happens. Um, you have to make fit happen. And, and that's not by looking at what people have done as a clear indication of what they're capable of doing. And the reason why talents uh, or talent assessment or reviewing people from a talent, strength, and passion perspective is that talents will make you good, but passions will make you great. And the, the requirement that every employee be a great employee you know, the recession has, re- has reminded us that, that you must get more done with less and all of the people who are here must be the right people. So it is a reminder that the entire process of hiring must be a critical um, understanding that you are investing in the assets of your company. The most significant asset you have is the intellectual capital of your company. And when you identify that people or that fit is the rule or the, the focus of of the entire uh, interviewing process or the hiring process, then you remind yourself that you must be very clear about your expectations in the job and you must be sourcing people who are naturally a good fit and you learn these new ways of talent-based interviewing using talent-based resumes and it completely changes the process. And like everything, in fact, Jim, your example about uh, Southwest, I fly Southwest up and down from Florida, from Florida, New England, I'm from New England and we're now in Florida. When they changed how you line up, it was a total debacle because people just – it was different. Even though it was absolutely foolproof, you just had to think for a minute. It was a great way of lining people up instead of running for the A, B, and C gates. Well, you know, a month after, two months after, everybody knew their place. They knew their way. So with a little bit of time, we'll figure out that fit is what matters. A new way of interviewing and sourcing candidates will make a difference. And when we do that, we'll have people who will actually show up passionately – connected, they're capable, competent, and love what they do, that's not a pipe dream. That's the way the great companies are currently doing it. And the reason why they're great companies is their people come and they stay. And all of those things are the things that have happened since this migration from industrial to intellectual. And, you know, the best thing we can do is thank the recession for accelerating the process because it has reminded us to watch the numbers, pay attention to the people, and hold ourselves accountable for really great results with our customers. Our guest is Jay Forty. The book is The Greatness Zone, Know Yourself, Find Your Fit, Transform the World. Jay, your website, if they want to find out more information, would be what? The two, the the focus on business will be www.livefiredup.com. And all the information on the new Greatness Zone, which which is a book uh, written in story form between two kids in college as they kind of explain these uh, five rules for a really great life that help you understand yourself. That is now at the www.thegreatnesszone.com. And the book available on Amazon.com, 
or at your local bookstore. Jay, thanks for being on the program. Thank you, Jim. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.